Talks of David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. We looked at the background last week to the rise of the concept of a king and of Israel and we looked at the first king. And as we saw, the first king, the first king, who was of course Saul, Shaul, was at the end of the day a, a unifying military figure. That was the key requirement of the king. It was the key symbol of the king and it was how Saul had most of his influence and power was through being a, a leader that unified the tribes militarily. Not much for any other purpose. Saul wasn't really sitting around administrating the public or dreaming up ways in which he could memorialize himself other than building his own family with an expectation of a dynasty which did not come about. Uh, but he was primarily concerned with being a unifying military leader. If you were living in the Israel of Saul, it uh, doesn't matter what tribe you belong to, you would be expected to answer the call of the king. And that itself already was a huge development in the whole rise of kingship. So that was last week we looked at that. We looked at the psychological um, train wreck of Saul's career and personality. And by the time we get to the end of Saul, and Saul, as you know, famously died on Har Gilboa, as we discussed last week, in a battle, one of the last battles ever fought against the Philistines. By the time we get to there, this young Judean shepherd boy called David, called David, has already been running around with his own private militia for a while. And he is pretty much poised. Oh, thank you so much, Rabbi. That is amazing. Okay, I won't use that. I'll test them. Anyway, uh, this young Judean shepherd boy who has his own private militia and is already uh, kind of established himself in the eyes of the Tanakh, in the eyes of the narrative that we have, as the obvious and primary candidate. But he's only got a few hundred men following him, and he is only from one tribe. It's not like the rest of the tribes and the rest of the population have necessarily been behind David because the official position coming from Saul's administration was that David is an outlaw and a rebel. And in fact, uh, as I mentioned last week, Saul had spent much of the time using the professional army of Israel to run around chasing David who eventually had to hide in Philistia itself. Now. That's kind of where we got up to. And uh, we know, and you know, who we is, I'm not sure, but it's known, that there is no character more detailed in their life, career, personality, activities in the whole of Tanakh than David. King David's life from the time he was a young boy right up until his death, every single thing is discussed in quite considerable detail, not only his outer life but even his inner life. 
So some of you are going to be sitting there when I talk about David and tonight I want to talk about quite a few kings. We could of course spend all of tonight and several other weeks just talking about King David. He becomes the prototype king for all of Jewish history. And some of you are going to sit there going, oh, I can't believe he spoke about this and didn't speak about that, or he left this detail out, or he left that detail out. I know. Please don't sit there going, oh, I wonder if he actually knows that David did this, this, and this. I'm probably aware of it. If you're sitting there completely fashtunked that I've left something massive out that you can't even believe I left that out, then call it out and let me know when I move on to the next king. But I have to, we have, in our discussion of David, if we want to try and do this succinctly, in the context of the fact that I have to discuss all the kings of Israel in six weeks, we're going to dedicate some time to him. But we have to try and get to the essence of what it is about David's life and career that contributes to our understanding of kingship and what kingship in Israel means for us going forward through the history we're going to look at. Because it is overwhelmingly influential in our entire perception of the concept of a melech, of the concept of a king and what a king should be. All subsequent kings, all subsequent kings, whether we mention them or not, are invariably and inevitably compared to David. He is the standard. But it's not all plain sailing, and there's an immense amount of complexity, so I just want to try and get to the heart of some of that. But like I said, we can't cover everything. The first thing we should know about David is that he was anointed. He didn't just rock up and say, hello, I'm David, I'd like to be king and put himself to a popular vote. He was, of course, chosen by God and anointed. And in fact, he is anointed in the book of Samuel three times. By the way, when I say the book of Samuel, and when we talk about Tanakh, just as a side note on this, maybe about even up until as recently as, say, 20, 30 years ago. We good? Until about 20, 30 years ago, it was fairly assumed that King David of the Bible, and when I say assumed, I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, people sitting in, uh, in, August houses of worship and, uh, and academies of rabbinical study. I'm talking about, you know, in general historical frame of reference. You know, you're chazofressing you're secularists, if it's not clear to you what I'm saying. <laughs> it was assumed that until, until 20, 30 years ago, it was assumed that King David is more than likely a fictional character. Not fictional, the word fictional is a very, very sharp edge to it, but uh, mythical in the sense that purely mythical. We don't know anything about the historical background. We're not entirely sure. We have no evidence. We have no evidence that a guy called King David who ruled over a united monarchy ever existed. That might come as shocking to some people. It was shocking to me when I first heard it. 
but in the last couple of decades, there have arisen quite a number of um, archaeological pointers and in some cases even perhaps explicit references to an individual called David who was a ruler in at least Judea or Judah in around the 11th or 10th centuries. That's a huge breakthrough in this thing that I'm constantly saying that the Tanakh is not an anachronistic document that was written much later. It would be almost impossible for the Tanakh to have a full representation of the archaeological picture that we have. Yes, a human being coming into a room. We've seen it before. And that we are constantly pushing back the boundaries. History does change. History does change. And the more we discover, the more amazing it is that the Tanakh seems to record events and people that it could not have known about had it been written hundreds of years later. And I'll touch on that a little bit more uh, this evening. David is anointed three times. The first time he is anointed is by the prophet Samuel, who comes to his family living in Bethlehem. This is still very much during the kingship of Saul. And David, that's when Shmuel gets the famous, unlike Saul, who was this tall, hunky, handsome guy. And when Samuel saw him, he goes, oh, yeah, I reckon that looks like it. You know, you can imagine someone like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, walking into a room. You go, yeah, well, hello, that looks like someone it should be. Whereas David was this, like this kid, and it was like, you know, like a kid running around. He was a bit red. He was a bit wild. He was a shepherd. He was playing his flute. He was doing whatever he was doing. And Samuel didn't think he looked particularly impressive. It was God who said to Samuel, We've shifted the paradigm here. Arise, anoint him, because that's the one. Because God is now looking on the inside of a person, not on the externalities. We tried that, it didn't work. Now we're going to look at someone who has, understands, and has somehow internalized the spirit of God. Samuel anoints him. The second time he's anointed... is after the death of Saul when David and his followers go to the capital of Yehuda. don't call out don't call out I say don't call out and you'll see there will be people who will call out don't call out what was the capital of Yehuda? the capital city of Yehuda that David went to to be anointed for the second time after the death of Saul and he is anointed as the king of Judah, not of all of Israel. He's anointed only as the king of Judah, which he remains for the next six or seven years because there is a civil war in Israel between the house of Saul and the tribe of Judah, who have elected David as their king. Where did that happen? In which, what well, was the capital of Judah? You're allowed to guess. You, huh? Okay, well, what was that? I'm saying don't call out to people who are sitting going, how come she's calling out? And he's going, oh, what, uh, what did I hear? It's okay. Who knows? I know some of you are sitting there and you know, you're just too ashamed, too embarrassed, whatever. Okay. It wasn't Jerusalem, was it? It wasn't Jerusalem because Jerusalem at that stage 
was still a Jebusite stronghold. Let's, let's understand what's happening here in the world at the time that Saul dies and David basically comes to the throne. There's the land of Israel. So, for the most part, the Philistine threat is kind of over. Yes, they had this big incursion which killed Saul, but as we're going to see in the next short while, they're basically a spent force. What we've seen in the intervening years is the rise or the re-rise, the renaissance of other older nations and kingdoms around, particularly on the east. Entities like Moab and Edom, which don't ever really pose too big an existential threat to Israel. The next existential threat is not going to come for a while. It's going to come from further away. It's going to come from Egypt and from Assyria. So there's been a slight configuration in things. The capital of the new kingdom of Yehuda, which is established in the wake of Saul's death, is of course Hebron. Who knew it was Hebron? Oh, you see, you should put your hand up. David is anointed in Hebron by the men of Judah, but he's only king of Hebron. And he's anointed the third time at the end of that civil war when it becomes clear that all of Israel needs David as its king, which we'll discuss in a moment, where he is anointed by all the elders of Israel as the king of the united monarchy, the full inheritor of everything that Saul ruled over, and that also happened in Hebron. So for a while, Hebron was, of course, the capital not only of Judah, but of all of Israel for a short while. Now, the first thing we need to understand about David is, and described in several places, is that he's not just a leader. He had a quality, he had something, he's described as something that Saul was not. And that is that David was a shepherd. Now, I know that Saul looked after a few donkeys, and he was a farmer, and he was a bit of this and that. But David took the whole concept of being a shepherd from the literal into the political realm. He was emotionally and spiritually engaged with the people. But he needed something else. In order to acquire these various stages of influence and power, David had to become something that Saul never really needed and never really got. And that was he had to be political. The king arises as someone who is not merely anointed, who does not merely have exuberant charismatic qualities, which of course David had plenty of, but needs to think about what the effect of his decisions are on those around him. And we see at each of those anointings that I mentioned, they're kind of followed by a political act that propels David onto the next stage of being David. And the first really thing that we can identify politically is a very, very interesting event that happens just around the time of the last great Philistine incursion that killed Saul. David did not fight in that war because he was an outlaw as far as Israel society was concerned 
he was living in Philistia, but he was barred from fighting with Philistia, of course, much to his great relief. It was during that time that the base of David's operation in the small town given to him by the Philistines called Ziklag was raided by a band of Amalekites going across the south and they captured all the women. David and all the men were out doing men stuff and they came back and all of the women had been captured. So of course they all freaked out, they all rode after this band of Amalekites, they found them, they slaughtered them, they obviously took everything that they had, they brought the women back including David's wives, they brought them back to Ziklag and everything has a happy ending, unless you're an Amalekite. In Tanakh, it never ends well for the Amalekites. <laughs> They've really been hard done by in Tanakh, I can tell you. When they came back from that battle, fascinating, um, not only a fascinating insight into the way that David was politically managing people, but also a fascinating insight into just uh, a precedent for warfare generally, not everyone that went with David's army fought in that battle. All right, you're always going to have people that do not fight in the battle. You're always going to have guys who are standing a kilometer back, a couple of kilometers back because they're looking after your gear, they're doing other things, they're guarding the rear, whatever they're doing, but they're not actually engaged in the battle. Maybe they're cooks. When the battle guys came back with all the spoil, they didn't want to share it with the guys that had not been actively engaged in the battle. And it was David who said, who established a principle, that an army is more than just the people that are doing the actual fighting. And that all of the support network behind an army is as entitled to the benefits of whatever it is the army brings as much as the guys who fight themselves. This became an established, an incredible political insight that solidified David in the eyes of his followers as someone who embodied a sense of, and this quality is massive, a sense of righteousness. What is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? Unity, of course, but righteousness. Moshel Ba'adam Tzadik, says the Tanakh of David. The ruler of men is a righteous man. Saul wasn't so much concerned about the concept of righteousness. Saul's struggle was with himself, with the prophet, with God. The concept that the king is a conduit for the right thing to do. Now the second political act that I just want to talk about briefly happens after he is already king of Yehuda, he's been anointed the second time. And you would remember, because I mentioned it last week, that we got to the point now where the king doesn't actually, he's the general chief of staff, but he doesn't actually on a day-to-day -day level lead the army. They have a very good Ramatkal to do that for them. And who was Saul's Ramatkal, general chief of staff? Avner, his cousin Avner from the tribe of Benjamin. When Saul died, Avner took Saul's last remaining son, who was not killed at the Battle of Gilboa, a young man called Ishbosheth, and made him king. So it's only fair if we're talking about all the people that have been kings in Israel, we need to mention, at least for a couple of minutes, we talk about Ishbosheth. Now, 
We don't have a lot of information on Ishbosheth. He was obviously a puppet king, prodded up by the tribe of Benjamin and by the, the, uh, the, the administrative power of Avner, who had spent most of his career chasing David as an enemy. So the last thing he needed to see was David from Judah on the throne. He was viciously loyal, supremely loyal to the house of Shaul and to the tribe of Benjamin. So he took Ishbosheth and he put him on the throne. And all the tribes went, okay. Except, of course, in Judah. And there was a lot of strife. It wasn't, it was, it was, it was pretty much a state of civil war. Not always hot civil war, but there was a civil war more or less for several years between Judah and the rest of the tribes. But from everything we understand, Ishbosheth was not a terribly impressive person or leader. He was a bit of a twit, actually. And he really got on Avner's nerves, made some strange accusations to Avner. It was very clear to Avner that this person was not the right person. He might have the right lineage in Avner's eyes, but he was not the right person. And eventually, Avner sent messages to David in Judah going, you know what, Ishbosheth is a twit. This is not the way we should be going. At the end of the day, even though I fought you most of my life, I've come to the realization that you are the chosen one of God. You need to be king of Israel and all the tribes need to be united behind you. Better you than a twit. And David goes, okay. And they hold a conference. They hold a conference. And Avner comes and they make shalom they make peace and Avner acknowledges the kingship the overriding kingship of David this is a despite the advice of his generals because David's own generals were saying this is a plot they've got no intention to do that at all they're just coming to scout things out the whole thing is a sham they're not actually interested in this project they're just saying it but David realized that you make peace with your enemies, not with your friends. And that he had to at least trust Avner, that Avner was a man of integrity and honesty. And he was. But that wasn't enough to convince David's own general chief of staff, who was, of course, Yoav ben Sluya. Once again, his own cousin or nephew. And Yoav, fiercely loyal to David, fiercely loyal to Yehuda, but a man almost incapable of understanding the political and symbolic importance of peace, committed an atrocity at that conference, and he killed Avner. Avner was the first of a series of murders by Yoav, for political reasons and because he completely misread the situation that is going to lead David at the end of his days he couldn't get rid of Yoav Yoav was too close to him he was in a sense I wouldn't say dependent on Yoav but Yoav was such an outstanding strategic thinker in so many other ways especially a military thinker but an incredibly threatened person uh, we'll see what happens at the end of that. But David, I mean, that was the first. In the end, 
you have ended up killing I won't have time to go into the mosque, I'll tell you now, you have ended up killing, who else did he end up killing that, uh, that David was, uh, was very upset about? Hmm. You all know this. You all know this. You all know this. All right, I'll come back to it. I'll come back to it. I, I, I was assuming you were just going to go. Sorry? Yes. No, no, no. He didn't kill Batno. But Sheva's husband is not someone he killed that David didn't want him to kill. He, you have killed three people that David did not want him to kill. Okay. And that's why when David was dying, one of the last things he said to his son, whatever you do, don't let Yoav ben Suriyah go quietly to the grave. He didn't want, he couldn't bring himself to kill Yoav. He left it, he left that dirty work for his son. He said, no problem, dad, consider it taken care of. It was totally taken care of. Um, so that was the, that's the second time we see David really engaged in a kind of political maneuver in order to affect this harmony. He had to earn it. He had to work at it. And the third brilliant, brilliant political act that David did was after the third anointing when he was already the king of all of Israel. And he decided to take the army and to conquer and occupy the central city of Yerushalayim and to create Yerushalayim as the capital of a unified Israel. But Yerushalayim was not just going to be a political capital, and this is the real genius and the real lasting impact, Yerushalayim is also going to be a spiritual capital. So David is the first to combine those two. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Yerushalayim. And it is now in Jerusalem that is the absolute center of worship for the God of Israel. Outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, sorry, outside of Jerusalem, there's not much you can do. Maybe you can daven a mincha or something. But if you're going to do the full-blown worship of God with priests and sacrifices and everything that's going to go on there, the full revelation of the divine presence is going to happen in Jerusalem. That's where people are going to make pilgrimages to. That is where the high priest is going to be. Everything's going to come out of Jerusalem. And right around the corner is going to be the political and administrative center of the country. We are aligning the two because David saw his remit as aligning those two the spiritual and the political and for the spiritual listen carefully when we say the spiritual it's very clear when you read the Tanakh doesn't matter how many commentaries you pour on it it's very clear when you read the Tanakh spiritual for David does not mean what we would call today religious. Yeah, I said it. I didn't just think it, I said it. Spiritual is righteous. Righteousness, mishpat, became the absolute ideal of ancient Israel. All the prophets are talking about it. All the righteous kings are talking about it. Tzedek or Mishpat. And David 
strove to embody that concept, which is why, which is why, God ends up making in two different places a unique and separate covenant with David. The Davidic household will always be the king, will always hold the kingship, not always a king, will always hold the kingship over Judah. Over all of Israel is a slightly different story. And in an ideal sense, over all of Israel. Because David came to embody that concept of righteousness. In contrast to Saul, whose kingship embodied military power, sovereign military power, David's kingship embodies the power of righteousness. Which is why, which is why the, the Tanakh is so amazing because David's own psychological complexities are often in conflict with what is the right thing to do. That is why when you read the book of Shmuel, particularly Shmuel Bet, the second book of Shmuel, I know that originally there's one big book of Shmuel. Now it's divided into Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. I'm sure you're all aware of that. Samuel 1 basically deals with the career of the rise of the king and the career of Saul. Samuel 2 deals mostly with the career of David. And for the first 10 chapters of the book of Samuel 2, the Tanakh is just, wow, that's amazing. The meteoric rise and rise and rise of David. After he becomes king and he's conquering, schmeissing. And he's establishing Yerushalayim, this incredible Jebusite stronghold in the, in the center of the country. Uh, and and where, when are we talking? Just so you realize this. Just so you realize when we're talking, this is minus 1,000. So... This would be zero, this would be one. So, so we're talking about 3,000 years ago. David's basically coming to the kingship around there. By all estimable accounts. <coughs> Not all, but most. So for the first 10 chapters, David's incredible has these special covenants, he establishes Yerushalayim, he talks about wanting to build a temple, we're going to touch on that in a moment. And then, having set all of this up in its exploration of David, the Tanakh takes a magnifying glass and it starts to look at the effect of power on even the most righteous individual. The king whose word is law, the king might be above law because his word creates the law, but is the king above natural justice and righteousness? The Tanakh's answer to that question is decisively no. And it brings us the very, very famous story that I'm not going to go into detail now on the actual incident of David and Bathsheba. 
Does anybody in this room not know what I'm talking about? Oh, fabulous. So I'm able to actually talk about this at a slightly deeper level. Some people get upset. Whose phone's going? Why, why is that happening? Someone's pretending that their phone's not going. Okay, some people get upset at the rabbis because the sages of Israel come along much, much later and they technify the whole thing and they say, well, it wasn't really adultery because every man who goes off to war writes his wife a divorce document in case he doesn't come back and they can't find his body so she's not left as an aguna. So everybody writes their thing a technical divorce document and off they go to war. So technically, Bathsheba was divorced. But in my view, what the sages of Israel do is not try and wipe away the whole thing. They're actually emphasizing it, underlining it, and exacerbating what exactly was the problem. David did not technically do the wrong thing, but he totally did the wrong thing. Because at the end of the day, the real emergence from that story Yes, she got pregnant, she had, from that encounter, she had a child, the child died. The prophet Natan comes to David, and that is the real essence of that story. That's where we start to open the door on the real understanding of the kingship and of the kingship of David. The prophet Natan comes to him and says, oh, excuse me, king, I'm coming to you to talk about a social justice problem. And David, just like Rabbi Ganendi, says, my door is always open to social justice issues. Tell me, tell me what the story is. So Natan says to him, there is a town, a village, and in this village there's a very, very wealthy man with lots of flocks of sheep. And a, poor, and a, and a traveler comes to the town, and he's entertained by the wealthy man. There is also a poor family in that village who don't have flocks of sheep. In fact, they only have one sheep. And it's actually, it lives in the house with the family. It's actually a pet. It eats off the same table as them. It's pathetic. And the wealthy man entertaining this visitor, instead of going to his own flocks and taking a sheep and feeding it to his stranger, he went to the house of the poor family. He took their only lamb. He slaughtered it and he served it to his guest. David goes, that's outrageous. That is the most horrendous travesty of justice I have ever heard. And Natan says to him the famous words, you are that man. Where else in the literature of any nation do you see a prophet talk like this to a king? So David is already experiencing the limits of his power in this very unique way that at the end of the day, kingship must be, must be within the parameters of righteousness. And of course, David immediately 
offers a full and uncompromising realization and confession and teshuvah over what he has done. There's no half-hearted whatever. This is, I have totally and utterly done the wrong thing, and he collapses. And as a result of his tremendous self-humiliation, David, uh, God says to David, you know, you're not going to die as a result of this, but there are going to be some issues arising out of it. And of course, the rest of David's career, his own household, is plagued by tremendous scandal. Because of this incident... And it turns out that Bathsheba is not dismissed. She does, in fact, become not only the wife of David, but the mother of the next king. Her role in the secession issue is very, very important. I, um, are you moving me on to Shlomo Melech? Do you think I've looked at my watch and I've forgotten who the next one is? Just one second. Because I want to just touch on something else about David that's important, because I just want to set this right. The other way in which David found limits to his kingship, the fact that, about the fact that he was um, pretty much allowed to do whatever he wanted, David wanted to build the Bet Hamikdash. He wanted to build the temple. And he said, oh, I'm sitting in a very nice house, thank you very much. And the Ark of the Covenant sits in like a tent. So I want to build a really nice house. I want to build a nice house for God. God, of course, does the whole thing. You know, no, I didn't ask anyone to build me a house. Blah, blah, blah. But if you're going to build me a house, this is how, you know. So David did not build that house, despite the fact that he really, really wanted to. The prophet Natan came to him and said, you're not going to build the house. Why? Now, I guarantee if I ask the audience here, everybody's going to say, what? What are they going to say? What's the famous thing we all learned? Why was David not allowed to build the temple? Because why? Because he had blood on his hands. And interestingly enough, this issue of why David was not allowed to build the temple is discussed three times in Tanakh. And the first two times, it doesn't say that at all. The first time the prophet comes to David and he says, well, it's a bit like when you're trying to politely deal with, you know, you're working human resources and you're trying to politely deal with someone about the limitations of their, of their job. You say, well, someone else is going to be doing that. Your son's going to do that. You know, it doesn't get, there's no reason. Your son's going to do that. When Shlomo Amelech builds the temple, when King Solomon eventually builds the temple, he refers to that incident in a kind of political spin and he says, you know, my dad didn't build it because he was busy. He was busy doing this, he had some wars, he had this, he had that, he was busy. Otherwise, for sure he would have built it, but he was busy. It's not until the third time that issue is discussed already at the end of Talach in Divrayamim in Chronicles where it comes and it says to you, David did not build the temple because he had spilt blood. What is the underlying message of that? What is the underlying... That the temple is a building of peace. Which, as of course, as we're in the nine days, we need to remember and we need to realize, we need to internalize. 
that a generation of war is not necessarily the generation that is going to build the temple of peace. But we should also bear in mind that at the end in David's career, at the end of David's career, that whole episode, I'm not going into detail once again, the book of Samuel's there, you read it, but I just want to highlight the whole issue of David and the census. It's very clear that David, while he couldn't build the temple, wanted to nevertheless set up all the infrastructure that would enable his son to move straight into it. What do you need if you're going to build a massive public works project like that? What do you need? You need materials and you need resources and you need labor and you need men and you need money. And if you're going to get money, what's the easiest way if you're a king to get money? Taxation. And if you're going to tax people, what do you need to know? Who's out there? Exactly. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly, but it's fairly clear that David, in his eagerness, decided to count the people. Even Yoav didn't want to count the people. He said, are you sure that's a good idea? God generally doesn't like that sort of thing. And, of course, God didn't like that sort of thing. And so there was a plague. And where did the plague stop? Where did the plague stop? That's another, another fascinating insight in David's character. The fact that David was given a choice by God. You want to lose a war, you want to have a famine, or you want to have a plague. The plague will last three days, but it'll be devastating. David says, I'll choose the plague, because that puts me into the hands of God. Where did the plague stop? Now, see, this is important when we, you know, those of you who write letters to the AJN, you need to know this. Where did the plague stop? Put up your hand if you know. I won't ask you. I won't ask you. But put up your hand if you know. Well, well, if you only learn, remember one fact from tonight. It should be this. The plague stopped at the threshing floor of a Jebusite called Aravna. And David realized that there is obviously something special about that spot and that is the spot which became the temple mount and David went to Aravna who was a Jebusite local Jebusite uh, lord who owned that still the Jebusite still had a presence in Jerusalem and he owned that particular area and David said to him I want to buy this off you. And Aravna offered it to him for free. But David said, nevertheless, I still want to buy it. And we bought the Temple Mount, on which David set up the Mishkan, set up an altar that later was going to become the Bet HaMikdash. All right. But as you've reminded me, we need to move on. I have still a number of, I have about 10 or 11 kings, and I've only discussed one and a half of them. So we'll move on, we'll go fairly quickly. As you know, David's uh, reign lasted for 40 years, seven of which were in Hebron, 33 of which were in Yerushalayim, and eventually he becomes old and he dies. There are all sorts of scandals and issues surrounding many of his sons who tried to claim to become king. At the end, it's the decisive influence of his wife Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan who come together and they establish that Shlomo, King Solomon, is going to become the king. David is lying there, of course, 
Famously, they bring him a, he can't get warm. They bring him a 16-year-old girl to lie next to him to get warm. Apparently, that's going to be the new work experience for year 11s at Montefiore. <laughs> but... That... Yeah, exactly. But... <laughs> ultimately, David leaves several instructions. Most of them have to do with vanquishing David's particular enemies, such as Yoav, uh, who had killed... Uh, who had killed Avner, and he'd killed Amasa, and he'd killed Avshalom, and eventually Yoav himself knew this was coming. As soon as King Solomon became king, this is the first thing that Solomon did was execute these orders of his father, and Yoav knew that and ran into. Where did he go? Where did he run? Where did Yoav run? You ever watch those Hollywood films where someone runs into a church and goes, "You can't kill me. I'm on sacred ground," right? So Yoav ran into the Bet HaMikdash, or not Bet HaMikdash, the sanctuary as it was at the time, and took hold of the altar. Said, you can't kill me on the altar. I'm grabbing hold of the altar. <coughs> and they went back to King Solomon and said, ah, a bit difficult. Yoav's holding on to the altar. He won't let go. And Solomon said, you know what Solomon said? Kill him anyway. <laughs> Shlomo HaMelech goes on to become the embodiment of complete sovereign power. He is an emperor. It is not just the embodiment of military or righteousness is something beyond. This is it. This is the fulfillment of the full Davidic promise that if you establish a society of righteousness then your leaders will be immense and they will rule not only over Israel but for the time of King Solomon the United Monarchy of Israel is the regional superpower. They've conquered everyone around them. In fact, Shlomo Melech sets up trade routes. He's the local, he, I mean, within the region of the Middle East, he's the most powerful ruler. And he indulges in tremendous splendor. This is the picture that we get. Historians, not so sure but nothing conflicting with it. We certainly have even found, at certain excavations, we have found levels that may well have been part of the entire countrywide reconstructions that were made under Shlomo HaMelech of various fortifications and towns all around. We found what we believe were copper mines in the south that may have been excavated or mined at the time of Shlomo HaMelech. We don't have any, there's no rock that says, hi, I'm Shlomo HaMelech, I'm here, I was here. Interestingly enough, in talking about archaeology, another thing we found in the last couple of decades, and I was, very, I, I was very privileged to see this not long after they discovered it, there is a, a massive fortification that is mentioned in Tanakh a few times that also figured as one of Shlomo Melech's big public building uh, um, projects, is a massive structure called the Milo. Anyone heard of the Milo? Anyone familiar with the Milo? Comes from the um, the word to fill in Hebrew, Mem Lamad Aleph. And the Milo, we're not entirely sure what it was for. It was more than just a wall, it was a huge rampart uh, 
made of kind of um, fillings, and, and it sits in under, under the city of David, and that's something I should mention. When we say Jerusalem, at this particular stage of Jewish history, what we're really talking about is Ir David, the city of David, and that is much smaller than what even many of us think of as Jerusalem, even if we think about the old city. It's much smaller than that. We're basically talking about a city whose center was not in the old city as we know it today, but you know that when you come out of the Dungate near the Kotel and you cross the road, you're at basically Ir David, that area, which much of which is undergoing excavations and so on. So under there, there is this huge rampart called the Milo. <coughs> and they now know the Milo, and they've re, uh, re, uh, reconfigured exactly what it was. They're finding more and more things all the time. If we were able somehow to go under Harabayit, and we can't do that at the moment without starting World War III, but if we could go under Harabayit, we might even be able to actually see a whole lot more about this level of where we're at. There are some who claim they can find the place where Shlomo HaMelech was crowned king in Yerushalayim, but we don't know. We can assume we don't know. So Shlomo Melech, the first really, really big thing he does, apart from those things he did for his father, but the first big, big thing he does, of course, is he builds the Bet HaMikdash. And in order to do that, he mobilizes the entire country in labor squads. And he forges economic ties with surrounding countries. His most famous economic partnership was with whom? With Hiram, with Hiram, the king of Tyre. And that's basically in where Lebanon is today. It was Phoenicia. And of course, much of Lebanon was covered with these nice big juicy cedar trees. And so the labor involved in cutting down those trees and logging them and bringing them to Jerusalem the labor of organizing quarries, that stones were to be cut, to be brought, to be used in the temple. This operation mobilized the entire country and it did so for seven years. And that's on top of quite considerable taxation. So Shlomo Melech was not an easy king. This was not a hugely populous country, but nevertheless they were supporting someone who was effectively an emperor. Now, I'm sure they got a lot of economic benefit out of it. We know they did, because Shlomo Amelech was collecting hundreds of gold talents every year from his population. So the economy must have been booming, but it wasn't easy. We don't have the same level of insight into Shlomo Amelech, into King Solomon's inner life, as we do with David. Remember that... David also is attributed with the whole of the book of Psalms that reflect all these incredible emotional states. With King Solomon, we do not get that inner look, but we can surmise that at some level, how do I put this? He wasn't quite as from as his dad. He was a bit, bit perhaps a bit more, a bit more secular in his outlook said all the right things at the right times, made big symbolic gestures, built the temple, gave some amazing speeches at the opening and so on, as you would. I mean, even if 
you know? Anyone would, getting up there would say appropriate things, but we don't get a sense that he was necessarily connected with that inwardly. What about all the wisdom literature associated? So, my next sentence was going to be, <laughs> nevertheless, we do have this fascinating wisdom literature associated with King Solomon. And it's extremely interesting because a lot of people think that in Tanakh it says that God came to Shlomo Amalek in a dream and says, Oh, you're King Solomon. God doesn't speak like that. You're King Solomon. We're all, very, we're all very impressed. I was impressed with your father. I'm impressed with you. You've built the temple. You've done all the right things. You are pretty much the embodiment of the messianic age which is really what it was. You know, we'd, we'd had, our forefathers had had a covenant with God and they'd gone into slavery and they'd come out and they'd got the Torah and they'd gone into the land of Israel and they'd eventually got this righteous king and the righteous king's son builds the big temple. That's the messianic age right there for you. We don't need any more history, thank you very much. Very impressed. What do you want? And because Shlomo Amelech could have asked for length of days or riches or to vanquish his enemies, but instead he said, I want wisdom. God says, oh, wisdom, excellent, I'm going to give you wisdom. But Shlomo Amelech there doesn't actually ask for chokhmah. He doesn't ask for wisdom. This is fascinating. I'm glad you raised it. He doesn't ask for wisdom. What does he ask for? What does King Solomon ask for? He asks for lev shomea lishpot, a heart that understands or to knows to judge, to judge righteously. That which came naturally to David is something that Shlomo had to ask for. He got it big time. But it wasn't necessarily a natural thing. And what is more astonishing, I mean, and subsequent to that, of course, as the rabbi alluded to, subsequent to that, we attribute to Shlomo HaMelech all sorts of mythical, incredible qualities in subsequent literature after Tanakh, that he knew all sciences and that he could talk with birds and he could do this and he could converse, control the demon kingdom and he had all this ooga booga going on as well as the fact that he was a philosopher and everything. All of that. But that is a kind of veneer on the fact that it would appear that Shlomo HaMelech had a far more is a far more intellectual engagement with the whole religious spiritual aspect that was going on because otherwise it's impossible to understand even on the level of pshat, even on the level of the most basic surface reading of the biblical text. It's impossible to understand how this dude, who God has personally visited twice, the first time to say, oh, I'm going to give you wisdom, and the second time to say, oh, look, you know, I know you're Shlomo HaMelech and I know you're the cleverest person on the planet and you'd be the last person I would need to remind about this but just be make sure that you don't get attracted to idolatry 
please make sure that you stay right away from that. Now I know that I wouldn't need to tell you because, as we know, I made you the smartest person in the world and I have personally visited you twice to tell you this. And yet what happens? He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. It's like, whoa. He has numerous horses from Egypt. And he allows a lot of his wives to build temples to idols in Israel. There's no doubt that the Tanakh, in its third person narrative of Shlomo HaMelech, is fully conscious of what this looks like. It's not a good picture. And so while Shlomo HaMelech rules for 40 years, which is the standard number if you're a righteous king and you rule right through, and he has the special, takes full advantage of the Davidic covenant and he builds the temple, nevertheless, there is something inside his disconnection with the true spirit of righteousness that God wants out of this land that causes, after his death, a catastrophic thing to happen to the United Kingdom. Now, during Shlomo HaMelech's reign, there, not everyone is happy. There is a, obviously an enforced unity because no one is going to bark anything against King Solomon while he's on the throne. But there are fault lines. And those fault lines, as we now know, have been present since even before David. Those fault lines that existed between the Judah-Benjamin axis on the one hand, and Jerusalem stood at the border of Judah and Benjamin, and the, all the rest of the tribes on the other. And as a result of that disquiet, there were several people that did voice their opinions. Notably, a fascinating individual called Yeravam ben Nevat, Jeroboam. Jeroboam started his career, as we know it, as a talented union leader really from the north he was from the tribe of Ephraim and he was good at getting people organized into projects so he was actually brought into the service of the king so he worked as a kind of a middle management figure on the temple con temple project for quite some time as a result of which he became pretty keenly aware of all of the social unrest that was happening under King Solomon's heavy hand. You can build the temple, you know, and still not make people happy underneath. They were overtaxed, they were overworked, all dissent was not tolerated. And he made these concerns clear to the point where he felt that it wasn't tenable for him to stay in united Israel any longer and he went and he fled and he went and stayed in Egypt until the end of King Solomon's reign when Shlomo HaMelech died it was a given that he would be succeeded by his son 
the Davidic covenant. It's always going to be a descendant of King David that's going to sit on the throne. So, after we had David, Solomon, that's me, and after Shlomo Amalek died, his son, who is Rechavam, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. Now, before that coronation takes place, a whole delegation of the tribes of Israel approach Rehoboam with a request. This is on the eve of the coronation. Your father was a big man. We all respected your father, but you know what? He worked us really hard. The people would appreciate a break. Now Jeroboam came back from, the, back from Egypt for that conference, for the coronation, and he is there. Rehoboam's response to that request is a singularly amazing illustration of failed leadership. He goes to two sets of advisors. The older advisors, those guys who had advised his father, said, you know what? You're the king, you can do what you want. But, if you do give the people a shtickle break, just from tax and from labor and all the things that your father worked on, they'll love you for it. It's probably not a bad way to start your rule. Get the people on side. Have them think you're a great guy. He went to the younger advisors, those he had grown up with, and they said to him, nah, the people are weak and lazy. They're lazy. You're the king. And what you need to show is strength, because that's what the people understand. They want someone, or they need, they only listen to strength. And so Rehoboam comes out and he says to them, Whereas my father chastised you with whips, I'll chastise you with scorpions. Because my little finger is larger than my father's whatnot. He actually says that. And you're all lazy. And I'm going to increase the labor and the taxes in fulfillment, in fact, of kind of what Shmuel, the prophet, had already said to the people, you're going to cry out to God to help you from this king. And at that moment, Jeroboam and the other leaders of the, tri the other tribes stand up. David. What do we have in the whole house of David? Why is this guy ruling over us? This confederacy is only a couple of generations old. We don't have to stick around and listen to this. And Jeroboam takes the ten tribes and establishes a whole separate kingdom in the north. Composed of ten tribes called the kingdom of Israel. Leaving, leaving Rehoboam with Jerusalem and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and the kingdom of Whoa, I'm getting high from that. The kingdom of Judah. That's the massive split. Now, I'm just going to focus on 
Yerovam Jeroboam for a while because he is a really, really interesting character and a total departure from what uh, has gone before. Some people think that Jeroboam set this up the same way you might see someone who's brogus with a shul go and set up a breakaway minion. Don't know if you know what that would be like. And the people can say, oh, you know, he's just doing it for his own glory and whatever. And they don't realize that who told Jeroboam that this would be a good idea to take 10 of the tribes and set up an entirely separate kingdom? Who told Jeroboam that would be a good idea? God. Through the prophet. Which prophet? Huh? Which prophet? Which prophet came to Jeroboam and said, God has said you should do this? Nathan. No, 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 no. We'd already moved beyond Nathan now. We've been through God. We've been, no, this prophet is an amazing prophet. <clears throat> you know, it's extremely interesting. And uh, I do pride myself on having made this connection. Is that in the 18th century, our 18th century, like just two, three hundred years ago. Um, I don't know if you heard about it, but there was this very, very big machlokas in Europe. Big uh, breakaway situation in Europe where a whole lot, millions of Jews decided to form their own thing called the Hasidic movement. The Baal Shem Tov and so on. Who did the Baal Shem Tov see as his own personal spiritual teacher that would come to him from the Garden of Eden and teach him was Achia Hashiloni. Achiah, the prophet of Shiloh. That is the man who told Jeroboam that God said he should set up the separate kingdom. It's amazing how that kind of spiritual connection of the concept of perhaps you should set up your own entire framework and entity. Uh, but Jeroboam does not go down in the annals of Jewish history as a hero, unfortunately. He goes down as someone who really squandered an opportunity because he came to a very, very stark and bizarre decision. What's your problem if you're Jeroboam and you are the king in the north? Where was his capital, by the way? Where was the capital of the first few kings of Israel? No, no, Shiloh's gone. No, Hebron is in the south. If you know this, I'll be mega impressed. Tirza. Tirza was a town in the hills of Ephraim. We're going to find out in a moment why we don't know about that. But if you're sitting in the northern kingdom as Jeroboam, what's your big problem? You wreck no temple. Your entire population is still spiritually connected to Jerusalem in the south. And they're all going to Jerusalem for their spiritual jollies. You need spiritual centers up here. That was David's brilliance to combine the political and the spiritual. You need spirit. So he sets up at two centers in the country, one in the north at Dan and one in the south in Bethel. Two massive spiritual centers at each of which he places... A golden calf. Brilliant. 
As I've said before, there's something hardwired into the Jewish brain about the golden calf, and it's like when we see it. You would imagine that he too must have read the book of Exodus and knew there might be a problem with this. But nevertheless, Jeroboam ruled for 23 years. In some bizarre way, the golden calves at Bet El and Dun, which stood there for hundreds of years, were in a bizarre way tolerated. Because although they were Avodazara, although they were idol worship, they were our idol worship. They were a Yiddish idol worship. <laughs> now, because the idea was that the golden calves represented the God of Israel. It was, it was, of course, Avodazarad, the writer, there's no question, but it kind of had a different status. In the south, Rehoboam, the first thing he wants to do is take the entire army of Judah and he mobilizes 180,000 men and he wants to take the north back. And on the way to doing that, he is advised by a prophet of God, don't do that. It's not going to end well. That project had God's blessing. So he goes back to Jerusalem and he rules for the next 17 years or so over a much reduced kingdom compared to his father and his grandfather of just basically the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem. But the, there is a Cold War situation during the time of both of those kings. I'll do the Israel kings in red. Now... Okay, I'll get through this quickly. And there's a certain point I have to get to, otherwise we won't make it for the next four weeks. Rehoboam rules, as I said, for around 17 years, and then he dies. And he is succeeded by his son. We're in the south now. We're in the south. We're in Judah. So we have the Davidic kinship. So like it or not, you pretty much know who's going to be the next king. It's going to be the son, or the grandson, or the nephew, or the son. It's going to be some connection with the Davidic royal family. But pretty much, usually, there's one son that you know is going to rule. That creates a great stability in a society where you have an order of succession. Who succeeds Rehoboam? I know that some of you know this. You're just being shy. Well, his name well, he's kind of got two names. His name is known differently depending on what part of Tanakh you're reading, but um, it's Aviyam. Sometimes referred to as Aviyah. Jeroboam also had a son called Aviyah who died young. Aviyam. Otherwise known as Aviyah. Aviyah only rules for about three years. It's not a long rule. But it does have one exceptional episode. Oh, by the way, just before I deal with that, just still on the subject of Jeroboam, who rules for 23 years. Um, the other important thing to understand, and it's truly fascinating, is that during Jeroboam's time, there was a... Uh, sorry, during... Rehavam's time. It's the same time frame, but it's in the south, not the north. There is an invasion by Egypt. 
the Egyptians come and they invade. This may have, uh, there, there were a lot of connections between Egypt, which was on the rise now, and again, and Israel. But not powerful, Egypt was not powerful enough yet to take the whole Middle East, but they were having some stirrings. And they made some incursions into the land of Israel. And amazingly, once again, we know that because the Tanakh tells us they came to Jerusalem, they raided a few things. And now we know it, now we know it because of archaeological discoveries in Egypt that have happened in recent decades that clearly indicate and talk about those raids. There is no way the Tanakh would know about obscure Egyptian raids hundreds of years later that we wouldn't even know about. And yet they have a record of it. The record of these particular invasions. Something interesting that you might want to look into uh, under Rehoboam. Under Shishak, the first of the ruler of Egypt. But Rehoboam is succeeded by his son Aviyah, and Aviyah decides that he is going to try and recapture the north. So he takes a big army, as much as he can muster, probably must have been almost every single man he can, even if the numbers are inflated. And the numbers tell us he took about 400,000 men, which sounds extraordinary. But he went north. And Jeroboam surrounded his army with another army from the north of twice the size. So Aviyah amazingly stands up on one of those hills in Ephraim and addresses the opposing army doesn't give a speech to his own army, he gives a speech to the opposite army. And that speech, I'm here to tell you, is a speech you should all read, because it's absolutely amazing speech. And the essence of the speech is, you will never succeed if you fight against the God of your ancestors. And the God of your ancestors resides in Jerusalem, in the temple, where we have the priests and we have the Levites. And the God of your ancestors made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And the God of your ancestors made a covenant with my ancestor David. And if you fight against us, you will never succeed. It was a very convincing argument, but unfortunately entirely unconvincing on the army that he addressed it to, and they nevertheless attacked. But the Judean army on that occasion won a huge victory against them. Aviyah is someone who scored an amazing victory in the north, but was ultimately unsuccessful. He did not end up integrating the northern kingdom back into the southern kingdom. Came close and even won a massive battle at, uh, at Samaraim but didn't, uh, didn't succeed ultimately and only lasted for three years and he was then succeeded by his son who is the first big king that's going to really emulate more the kingship of David not completely but is regarded as one of the righteous kings ruled for 41 years and that is I know you know this Asa. Asa is a huge king, 41 years, 
and is regarded as one of the few righteous kings. The first thing he does is he makes some religious reforms, gets rid of a whole lot of idols. People are worshipping in all sorts of strange places. The thing, the system was becoming a bit corrupt, even in the southern Judean kingdom. So he brought back, they made renovations on the temple, brought everyone back into line. We're going to see this again as a repeating and recurring motif with the kings, that those who are suddenly wake up one day and go, oh, I want to be a righteous king, decide that they are going to rebuild the temple and they're going to rededicate themselves and the society to a spiritual focus with God. And Asa is also kind of the first of the kings of Judah to play a geopolitical game. Because the northern kings, as we'll see in a second, are starting to make incursions and set up fortresses quite near the border. There is still a stage of state of cold war between the two. Baashan, we'll talk about in a second, one of the northern kings, establishes these fortresses. And Asa in the south goes around him, not with an army, but diplomatically, to talk to the Aramean kings up here and pays them to break their loyalty with the northern kingdom of Israel so that the northern kingdom of Israel is forced to defend its northern flank and Asa can move in and retake those fortresses. It's a bit like a Bay of Pig situation where they were basically choking Jerusalem. About five miles from Jerusalem there were these northern fortresses but they got them to release them by playing a geopolitical game with the north. It's very interesting because that is also going to be a pattern going forward. The kings of Israel are now aware that they are part of a wider political sphere that involves not only Egypt, it involves the rising cultures of Aramea in Damascus, of Aram, which is eventually, we're not there yet, we're not there yet, but is eventually going to uh, be felt and feel the influence even further east as we get to Assyria and Babylon and so on. That's going to take a few centuries. But we're just starting to see the rise of power bubbles here. But Asa's reign is long and it's stable and it's what we would call righteous. He is a classic Davidic king. We don't know much about his personality, but we do know that he was quite well loved by the people. He had some issues with the army and some issues with, uh, with, uh, with how he treated people, but for the most part, a righteous king. Jeroboam, in the north, after 23 years, was succeeded by his son, again? No, Rehoboam was not his, Rehoboam was the king in Judah. Jeroboam is the king in the north, and his son is? That's the real reason I want your phones off, because I don't want you Googling. Well, you can. Nadav. Nadav is only on the throne for a couple of years. Nadav is like his father without the charm. <laughs> so... So he's kind of even more into idol worship and he's opening up the country a bit more and this is just not going in a direction that's productive at all. So along come the prophets of God and they say to him, now this is all going to end and uh, it's not going to end well for the whole house of Jeroboam and the tribe of Ephraim. And in fact, Nadav and his family 
are all killed in a coup d'etat by one of his main generals, a guy called Baashan. Baashan is going to end up ruling for 24 years. So he's a big contemporary of Asa. And Baashan is we don't once again, once again, all the Bible is telling us about these kings, this guy king like Baashan, is how he came to power. Is how he came to power. Obviously had felt not so impressed by the house of Jeroboam that once the younger son was on the throne, the younger son was on the throne, he only gave him a couple of years before he assassinated him and took control. And that's basically how it was in the north. If you felt that you had enough support and you had the right kind of weaponry and you could get access, you just kill the king and you become king. But generally you have to be well placed. Barashan was a general. He was from the tribe of Yisachar. And he became king. And when he died after 24 years, and 24 years, by the way, that we understand, did not do anything to improve relations. He, in fact, is the one that built those fortresses that Asa had to deal with, as well as opening up the country more and more to some of these political influences. If Asa had to buy off the Arameans from the north, then you can be sure that the alliance with Aram was not merely political, it was also cultural. And that means that already we're getting various cultural idolatrous influences seeping into the north, especially as the economy starts establishing itself. What does the north have? What does the north have? It has Samaria, it has the Jezreel Valley, it has all that fantastic agricultural arable land. So their economy is actually, and they've got sea routes and they've got everything. Judah doesn't have these things. So they do have the basis of a good economy. But with that growth in economy comes all sorts of strange ideas as you make more and more alliances and you open up your culture to wider influences. And Baashan is succeeded by his son Ella. And Ella is only on the throne for two years before he too is subject to another coup d'etat, this time from a guy called Zimri, who also was a general in Ella's army. In fact, so awful was his conspiracy that people would say for years afterwards, oh, you've done a Zimri. And Zimri himself, who rebelled against his lords, another commander, rebelled against, killed the king and his family, started his own dynasty, sorry, and he only lasted for seven days. He's only on the throne for a week before he too is overcome in a coup d'etat. And in that coup d'etat, when Zimri, who was in Tirzah, in the palace in Tirzah, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, saw the impending doom, he decided to go up with the whole city. So he put the whole place to flames and died with it. Just set the palace alight as the forces were coming closer and surrounding him. A bit like, you know, who in the bunker and he just... Who was it that surrounded him and eventually caused his death and became the next king of Israel. And the person who's going to become the next king of Israel is going to be the first to establish a really, really big 
dynasty in the Northern Kingdom. And that, of course, that dynasty became known as the House of Omri. So Omri is a commander. We're going to look at Omri next week. Just as Omri is pretty much a contemporary of Asa's son, who's the next big, big king of Judah, who you've all heard about, which is Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat and Omri are connected. So in the time that it's taken to have three kings in the north, we've got like five or six kings in the south, we've got five or six kings in the north. Jeroboam, Nadav, Parshan, Elah, Zimri, Kudetah, Kudetah, Kudetah. It's all about violent succession. You can see that the whole idea of kingship in the south is one of stability, the Davidic covenant. That's what's going to happen. The ideal king is one who is embodied in righteousness. In the north, the ideal king is anyone who's able to sit on the throne for as long as it takes and who can withstand the economic and the military and the personal pressures of being on the throne. We don't learn a lot about leadership from the kings in the north until maybe Omri. But the southern kings are all trying to emulate David, which is why David is the proto-king and why really almost every single facet, every single aspect of David's life and career since then has been magnified into cosmic proportions. Those of you who want to read the book of Shmuel should realize that every line of the book of Shmuel in mystical and Kabbalistic thought is understood as referring to something else in Jewish history but particularly the messianic age. David is the prototype not only of king, but of the king that will put an end to all kings. So, I have some... Let's see if I spoke about this at all. More or less. Um, but um, we will continue our journey next week. I know that tonight's was not as uh, perhaps as exciting as last week's in some ways, but we have a lot of kings to get through, and next week it is going to get very exciting because... The, uh, the Cold War is going to evolve into something else between the two kingdoms and uh, it, gets, uh, it goes in great unexpected directions. So hopefully I'll see more of you next week and thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.